Y'all is a useful term. So, Y'all is good. Yeah. <laughs> What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to Beam Radio. All right. There's Amos King. Hello, hello. No, I, I think salt fee for, for Chris is still quite mild. All depends on which Chris you pick. <laughs> That's true. Salty for Keithley is is uh, get out of the way. Salty. <laughs> Welcome to Beam Radio. I'm Lars Wikman, and I'll be your host today. And I will introduce our panelist, Bruce. Hi from Chattanooga, Tennessee. And just for some context, we've actually lost a few of our hosts today to assorted. <laughs> mysteries uh, such as production fires uh, meetings and uh, a little there was bit plague. of illness. there was some plague yeah yeah some plague uh, but i figure we'll we'll trudge on i'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about and we do have a guest so that will help but first a word from our sponsor groxio so what's going on at groxio bruce yeah so we are wrapping up the our first pass through the uh, the index library with a special emphasis on Axon. In the last chapter, we we're kind of focusing on working with computer vision. And it's my first pass through this framework and these techniques. That's a lot of fun. So some of the heat map things that are built in that, that, allow, that allow kind of image, uh, just kind of a glimpse inside images and IEX and, and some of the techniques that are used to kind of distill and make compact image data to, to kind of make a more specific learn solution, more general, all these things are, are pretty cool. So we'll explore CNNs and dropouts and pooling layers. And if you don't know what those are, but you're interested in machine learning, come give us a try. Very interesting. I, I've only played with sort of open CV and I think computer vision is probably where I would, would I would start for myself with AI, that, that's the type of thing that could get me hooked because it's practical application, very practical application. So yeah, interesting. But moving on to introduce our guest, a king of Kansas City, the most significant bit of binary noggin, as much as 10% of the speaking time of the Elixir Outlaws. Welcome to the show, Amos King. Hey, thanks. I don't know. Most significant bit of binary noggin is is probably my my better half. Uh, she she's the only only reason that we're successful, as far as I'm concerned. I just know how to type real well. Um, and and Bruce, I I just want to go get on Groxio right now and and start going through all the the NX and Axion stuff. So let's, let's turn it up there. That's awesome. Yeah, it's it's been interesting to see this come together. It's it's such a bizarre, bizarre kind of a, a reverse in the direction of Elixir, but without kind of going away from the things that make Elixir cool in the first place, right? So you have this functional language that is completely immutable, and then and and it's dynamically typed even with the dialyzer things and. But then you then you say, well, this thing can't do number crunching well and never will do number crunching well. And and Jose takes the takes the little hammer and taps in exactly the right place and says, Well, yeah, I just I just delegated number crunching <laughs> to these five libraries through this API with macro support, which kind of makes it all transparent. And 
everything works. And then you, you kind of get a lot of interested people kicking tires and then little projects start popping up all around it, right? So we've got like the full live, live book support, which went from zero to 60 in gosh, no time flat. And then now there's, there's um, you know, data explorer kinds of things popping up so that, so that you could actually have access to the, the training data and things like that to, um, you know, to kind of collect the data that you need to train the systems and test the systems. And then it just, it just kind of builds from there. And so now what we have is the access to the beautiful abstractions in Elixir, like all the piping. So when you build an Exxon model, it's just this thing pipes into this, pipes into this, and, and you could really tell what's happening. And, and it delegates the things that Elixir is not good at to frameworks that are really good at it. They tend to be not the most critical part of the design architectures. So it's, it's really, really cool. That's really nice. I've done my fair share of passing, passing pictures off to, to Python and, and things like that for, for AI. And, uh, I'm, I, I'm really excited because now I feel like I can build my pug or pig website where you just submit a picture and it tells you if it's a pug or a pig, that would be fantastic. What's the other one? The muffins versus, um, some some type of puppy or something like that yeah i like the pug and pig just because it's about you and i <laughs> <laughs> sorry sorry <laughs> bad dad joke <laughs> that was an excellent dad joke isn't that with how that, isn't that with the that same well, as bad dad joke <laughs> with that handled like okay setting setting the level setting the bar for this conversation <laughs> <laughs> sorry um, i didn't mean yeah. to start so low Oh, can only go up, hopefully. <laughs> so I know, I know some of your origin story from an older episode of Elixir Wizards, like two seasons, three seasons back, something like that. They do seasons. That's very, very polished. Um, but I think we can focus on sort of present day Amos and just give the listeners a brief sort of, who are you and what do you do? Why are you sure. in Elixir? What, what, what was that last part? Why are you in Elixir? Why am I in Elixir? Um, so I, I, had, I had worked on um, chat software, secure chat software uh, that was all in Java. I had worked in Ruby for many years. I started Ruby before Rails came out um, and then got really into Rails and during the time that I was doing a lot of Ruby and Rails, um, the team that had taken over the secure chat software said, we're going to redo the server in Erlang. And I was no longer on the team, but I was coming down and helping once in a while, answering questions and, you know, trying to share that knowledge. And I, and I got interested in Erlang. I read Joe's book um, and really thought that Erling was awesome, but I had not the biggest love for the syntax. I still played with it, but not the biggest love. Um, 
and and from there, whenever whenever uh, Jose came out with Elixir at the very beginning, uh, I followed along because I liked the syntax a lot better, and I thought if he's going to bring the power of Erlang into into a syntax and tool set that I can, I would say more easily find other people to work with me because there wasn't as big of a syntax jump for them. Um, that that would be really amazing, and then kind of fell in love with all of the tool set and everything around it and the way the language itself was implemented. Um, the macro system, you know, like being kind of a first order thing. Uh, it's something that I, I don't use the macro system very often, but I love that it, it's there. And, and I love how accessible I, I think the language is like whenever you go to um read something that's implemented in the language. And I think like the core library, the standard library is well thought out. And, you know, I think Jose is a fantastic steward of the language in saying, you know, this is a great idea. Let's pull it in, or this is a great idea, but why don't you make a library out of that? I think he's really good at, at, um, guiding the language itself. And, uh, and so I just kept going with it and got on board and, uh, never looked back. Yeah. We have a, Pretty similar story, especially the beginning of, of, of Elixir that, that I was involved with Ruby pretty early on and, um, and kind of came into dip my toe into the Erlang waters just a little bit for seven languages in seven weeks. And, and as a dyslexic, it tore me up, right? So uh, both, both Lisp and, and Erlang just I, they they never quite clicked for me, so it, it's interesting that it was the syntax combined with the functional language that pulled me into Elixir. It really wasn't OTP until very much later. It was probably um, three or four years in that I really started diving deep in those areas and into OTP. Um, but I, I know that that you were you were involved in. Kind of understanding what OTP was bringing from the very beginning, right? Yeah, I mean that's that's actually kind of what sucked me in was was not really the FP. I was still uh, I still uh, my mind sometimes wrapping around the FP stuff is a is a like I got to take a step back and start over and think through everything um, with that data in mind because I still have major OO. Uh, I don't know if it's if it's battle wounds or <laughs> or, or good memories. I'm not real sure at this point. Um, but yeah, the watching that server come together and and seeing things that uh, I mean, I'm not the biggest fan of Java anyway, but seeing things that I wrote tons and tons of code to handle and really didn't even realize it was trying to mimic OTP in, in many ways, not completely, but, but in a lot of ways was trying to mimic OTP and the actor model and, and just seeing that how they could do that. You know, I know it was Erlang and I was staring at like this dense terse code. I think that's really what makes it hard to read for me is everything is so it feels very compact and tight and there's not a lot of delineation for me in my mind between beginning and end that that period at the end is just not enough for my brain. Uh, <laughs> it's not big enough. Um, but just watching how little they had to do and their performance was better. They, they didn't have a lot of the bugs that we 
would constantly be trying to fight and figure out a, we spent a lot of time working in, in a server, really digging in and trying to solve, you know, threading issues and, and memory shared issues. And, and a lot of it ends up being like, Hey, copy, copy things and then pass them around instead of passing them directly. So we ended up doing a lot of the things that, you know, Erlang gives you for free. Yeah, so there's a the guy named Brian Getz that wrote this book called Java Concurrency in Practice. I don't know if you remember that one. But, uh, um, I've seen the book. I've never read the book. <laughs> right. Um, so I read the book with an understanding that Java Concurrency was all about, you know, semaphores and critical sections and the things I wrote in college. And it's just not, right? <laughs> so so I read through this and and I said, I'm I'm doing it wrong. And I know that I've seen tons and tons of code that's also doing this wrong. And um, that led, led me to the question, why is all of this Java code working <laughs> in production, right? So I know that the mistakes are out there. Um, and I have a theory that there, there's just a ton of not just Java code, but object-oriented code that works because we're not throwing enough cores at it yet. And that there's a that there's a time bomb out there. I, I can't prove it, but I, I think that that's probably yeah. true. It's the yeah, those those timing bugs, those are the ones that you know you you find out one day and then six months later you see it again. And <laughs> the so yeah, I think the more processing power we throw at it, and the faster our computers are moving and the way more that we're going to have, you know, two, two processes trying to talk to some memory at the same time, and it's going to get out of hand. I agree with you. That's yeah. pretty good observation. Yeah. And th I think that that's not just in the Java layer itself, but other things that are built on top of the Java layer. So mm -hmm. <laughs> languages that are, that have the actor, actor model, but they're, they're built on a Java foundation and that, might see some of the same same problems creep up. Um, I don't know that to be true, but I suspect that it's true. Meanwhile, on the flip side, we've had numerous conversations where where it comes up that well, we built this Elixir service and it's been rock solid for months. We barely ever touch it, but but when we actually check the logs, it's it's crashing two hundred times a second. But but it seems to be working fine. <laughs> I, I recently had that same kind of thing in live view uh, on a project that we were working on. And I just happened to glance at the production logs and saw, oh, we, we have an error. We're not, we're not, we're sending a message that nothing is actually handling and the live view. So it was, uh, I'll give a little bit more than that. It was a list view, right? And we added something to the list and um, when we tried to add to the list, we were sending a message that, that we had a typo in. And so it was, it would add, go to add to the list and it would cause it to crash. The list would crash and reload while well, the reload was pull the list out of the database. So no user ever noticed. It might've been slightly slower, maybe, eh, probably not much. And, and yeah, we, it was probably that way for over a month. No bug reports. Um, I felt like that was that. I mean, that was really awesome. I'm so glad that our end users didn't see anything, but it also made the case for observability and alerting even more because I don't want to leave those in there. 
yes, yeah. it saved me, but I don't want to leave it. Yeah. Yeah, that's, it's sort of evidence of a pretty decent recovery strategy. Like, oh, yeah, just crash it, start it over from good state. Um, but, but yeah, <laughs> you get nervous when you realize that you've screwed something up or left something in there that's just throwing a red doll across the logs. Yeah, how many, what are the rest of the places in the code where that's happening was, uh, was a little bit of a freak out. <laughs> now I need to watch the logs all the time. So the, the excuse for bringing you on the show is, is to talk about teams and agile because things are always about people with you. Uh, the real reason is just that it's, it's nice to have you on and chat, but, but the, the excuse <laughs> is talking about teams and agile. And I guess we can start with, tell us about your agile life. Oh, this, this agile life, the podcast. Well, uh, take I it any way you like it. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I mean, in, in college, um, uh, we had a software engineering class. I'm gonna, I'm, I brought some props, even though nobody can see them. Uh, and our professor was remote and he worked at Boeing and he was a project manager, um, tech, I would say a real technical project manager. Uh, he loved writing software. And um, in this class, we had two books. One book was about all these different processes of developing software. And it talked about waterfall and iterative waterfall or what I would call scrum uh, and XP and, and all kinds of different things. And then, and at agile, I guess XP is really, okay, we'll, we'll get to that is, is agile. But then he also made us buy this book, extreme programming explained um, by Kent Beck and um everything that i read in there i you know i had already read pragmatic programmer journeyman to master that book kind of changed my my early um college life i guess which i only picked it up because it was the only book on the shelf that didn't have a white cover and say o'reilly on it uh, <laughs> And which now all the Prague Prague books have white covers for the most part. It kind of blows my mind that I picked it up because it didn't have a white cover and now they, they do. But um, those books, uh, I guess were life-changing to me. Like I, when I, when I read them, I thought, well, yeah, of course. And some of it, I was like, I'm already doing this other parts of it. I thought, why am I not doing this? Um, and, and so I started out with that in mind. And then uh, I worked for two government organizations, organizations, U.S. Geological Survey and uh, USPS. And um, they are, uh, I, I would say in a lot of ways, it really surprised me because they feel a little waterfall. But when you get down to it, everybody, everybody there is doing agile anyway. Um, they're kind of taking that design, upfront design stuff and, and like most government organizations, that's just overhead and red tape. And we throw the whole design and book away and actually build what people needs right after. And then I went to another company that um, did pair programming and had uh, stand-up meetings every morning and weekly retrospectives. And I, and when I say we did pair programming, we switched 
prayers a lot. And we, I mean, we like, it wasn't pairing once in a while when it was hard or when I was in a problem or when I had already been Googling for 12 hours. And then I decided to ask, uh, it was part of the culture and, and how that company ran. Um, and then, you know, over the years, every team there kind of refined how they worked. There was no prescriptive way that everybody had to work. Um, so in switching teams, I, I got a lot of feedback and, and change throughout my career there. And then some of us got together and the things that we talked about, we started podcasts called This Agile Life. Uh, I want to say it ran for seven years. I don't know. It wasn't regularly recorded at the beginning and then got that way, but we, you know, we just got together and, and talked about how do you develop software? And that frequently led into how do you develop people? Um, I remember one episode where one, another one of the hosts said, well, what, as a tech lead or a project manager, what do you do when one of your engineers asks for a glass of water? And I said, you go get them a glass of water. <laughs> Like this is this is not a difficult question to me, and that's kind of we had a people work here logo that that we use that you know not resources just think of people as people, and if somebody is in the middle of a problem and they're asking you to get them a glass of water, it's probably because they're focused and they don't want to to break that to get a glass of water or because you're just standing around and and maybe that's the best way to make people productive. It's not always about making people productive by it's never about just handing them another thing to do. Right. So I don't know, yeah. I guess I feel like, I feel like that wraps up my beginning of my agile journey. The other book that I had that I thought was really great is beyond legacy code by David Bernstein. It's really also a great book for some practices and agile stuff. If anybody wants to check those out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so one of the things that's interesting to me is that you have started uh, as 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 binary noggin to embrace more nerves projects, and mm -hmm. I was wondering what that does to an agile process. What does hardware do to an agile process? Uh, I feel like like it doesn't. This this is the the weird secret to things is that it doesn't change very much at all. <laughs> uh, I mean when you have to, to, um, try to design a chip or not a chip, a, a board or anything like that, which, um, we don't, we, we try not to do a lot of, we, we design prototype boards, but, uh, I, I mean, a lot of it is still, you still have to react to change and agile to me is all about shortening a feedback cycle. The shorter it is, the, the more information you have and the, the more you can react. So, you know, you may start out, let's say you're doing some computer vision stuff, right? Uh, and you have a specific camera that you're interacting with. And then suddenly there's there's a mass shortage of silicone in the world. This is all theory, right? That's and uh, maybe you can't, you can't get that camera anymore and you have to get a different one. Um, the, the earlier that you know that, the quicker you can react to it. Uh, and, and you have to change your plans and you have to be willing to change your plans. And, and that's, that's why it's almost absurd to me that, that people think of agile as 
as like not the way to go is because you know in any business any client we've ever worked with uh any business i've ever seen you have to react to what what is currently going on in the world in, in the small and in the large and so you know you have to what is it the last responsible moment is when you really need to make a decision now there's a fine line between last responsible and first irresponsible moment <laughs> um, and and i think that's actually what agile gives you is that it it gives you a chance to recognize the last responsible moment instead of oh crud we had this plan and now we're at the end of our current cycle of that plan maybe a week maybe 6 months worth of a plan and we go to look and oh we can't order these cameras anymore right and so i don't know that working on hardware really has a whole lot of an impact on agile um, it sometimes extends your feedback time just because oh, if you're getting a custom board made, you have to wait for that board to come in, but that doesn't mean that you can't make progress, right? If you're writing tests, um, you can, you can write tests for hardware, um, based on, based on documentation for hardware. You don't have to have the hardware sitting there. Um, so you can, you can still make that progress. Now it, you, you have to be a little disciplined about it and it's tough. And sometimes you bring that hardware in and it doesn't quite behave like the, the sheet says it will, but you can get an 80, 90% of the way without having hardware even there. Wasn't that what you did for the, the lightning talk? Yeah, yeah, I did. Uh, what was that? The lightning talk that wasn't a lightning talk because it was. A it was not a lightning talk. talk. Uh, lightning without lightning. That's what, or, or hardware without hardware. So that was uh, Elixir days, the very last Elixir days in Colorado. And um, Frank Hunleth had sent me a um, lightning sensor. And I got out the sheet and I started writing tests. Um, I did property tests, uh, kind of my first big foray into that. Um, I'm, they're ugly, they're terrible, but they were in, um, and just use the data sheet. And before I got on stage, the only thing I tried to do was make sure that I could load the software onto the actual hardware. I never ran anything. I never tested it. I just loaded it and made sure that it's didn't just like reboot over and over. Uh, and so I got on stage and for the very first time loaded it up and then used a Van de Graaff generator to simulate lightning. And it actually came out, it said lightning struck and it said not real lightning. It was man-made lightning, which is part of the chip was able to sense whether it was a man-made strike or a real one. And I was like, Holy cow, it worked. So like that was, so that was my, um, I, I would almost say my, my, you know, my proof, my thesis, my, that was, I was defending my thesis that you could, could write software for hardware without having the hardware present. Now you need a storm and a kite and a string <laughs> and a key. I'm sure that I can find somebody in, in Southern Missouri that would do that for me. I bet you could. <laughs> Benjamin Franklin didn't die. Won't hurt me. <laughs> hold Seems my fire. bear. Oh. <laughs> Wait, did you say hold my bear? No, hold my bear. <laughs> did you say hold my bear? Bears are dangerous. Hold my bear.
Lars is like crazy Americans. <laughs> it's like, uh, it all sounds the same. <laughs> oh, the nuances of uh, American accents. So that's one of the fun things about being, uh, I guess, an international English speaker. It's I just pick whatever idioms and things I feel like at the moment. Like, is this a color with a U or a color without a U kind of day? How British do I want to be? How how much of a Southern slang do I want to co-op today? Because I, I essentially can't steal something that none of it belongs to me. None, none of it is quite right when I do it. Uh, but I have to use some kind of English and uh, I'll go for all of it. <laughs> Y'all is a useful term. So. Y'all is good. Yeah, <laughs> it really is. So Amos, I want to go back to one of the things you said. You said it's all agile and it kind of, I, I was quiet for a while because I was thinking through through the last 20 or 30 years of history with, with all these things like just-in-time manufacturing, right? Which is which is about getting your inventory in line so that you can be agile. I thought about just-in-time or printing on demand, which is getting the print shop in, in, um, in place to actually print a more dynamic stream. Um, I thought about publishing on demand and where that's going so that so that you um, publish in smaller lots so that you don't have the problem of of changing um, of kind of changing the book as you go and and yeah I think I think maybe you're right maybe it is all agile hey hey look at 3d printers and you watch people try to design stuff on a 3d printer, right? They, they print it, they try it, they print it, they try it, they make little tweaks over and over. And then, you know, maybe they end up printing hundreds of these things and selling them or, or like you see these big 3d print shops, but they, they don't start out with your design and be like, we're going to print 500 of them. They print one and they get your feedback and then they print the next one and get your feedback. So nice. yeah, our, our world's making that easier and easier too. We don't, we don't need to spend eight months figuring out, but we, I don't know that we ever really did in software. Maybe when you had car, cards, punch cards, right? Because you had to stand in line for the machine and, <laughs> and wait for your turn. But since, since the modern desktop and development cycles come in, we, we don't, we don't need to spend that much of print time. That's like the wonderful thing about our job is we can get immediate feedback. I use mixed test watch most of the time whenever I'm running, writing software. So my tests are running every time I save a file. Like that's, that's my goal to immediate feedback. Yeah. It's that feedback cycle, right? So um, I want to go back. It's keeping the feedback cycle in mind and want a little bit of a digression here. You said USGS and mm -hmm. I have a, a pretty large exposure to USGS specifically the river level system that, that they have, where, where they would publish um, the river level instantaneously. And that was a cool thing for me that actually um, gave birth to whitewater kayaking in Texas, <laughs> believe it or not, because, um, because in Texas, you can't, there's not enough water most of the time to whitewater kayak. You have to chase the storms. But if you catch, if you catch a river or a stream, 
very often a stream, like a steep stream that's that's on its way up, you're going to run across a lot of barbed wire and kill yourself, right? And so what people did was they they let the river come up and they watch it on USGS charts and the waterfall system, right? Sorry, bad pun. <laughs> but they watched the levels on the way up and then they would jump on the, the, um, the river at its peak and kayak it on the way down. And um, gosh, there, there was a, a vibrant paddling community in Texas because of some of the work that USGS did and um, and how they kept that system up and running and they enhanced it over time. Um, it it's, was really a fabulous exposure to USGS and waterfall <laughs> to me. That's pretty amazing. Uh... I, I didn't work on that project. I wish I had, so I could be like, yeah, I, I helped you kayak, but <laughs> that, that is, that is pretty, and well, and, and even that, right. Is feedback. Like you're, you're building on that. When's the best possible moment, you know, that, that last responsible moment to jump on that river and ride it down. Because if you're a little bit late, you're running into barbed wire. If you're too early, you're running into barbed wire. So Right. They're letting right, you be right. an agile kayaker. <laughs> yeah. If you, if you're a little bit too late, there's no water. Right. So there's, <laughs> there's like, there's probably like, uh, you know, if, if you're not lucky, a four hour window, if you're really lucky, there's like a, um, I don't know, maybe a, a, a day and a half or two day window. Uh, pretty crazy though. Yeah. So trying to drill down a little bit from sort of high level, why is agile important, useful, and into what do you actually use? Because there are so many things that are called agile. There are so many methods. There's so many specific practices, like day-to-day -day things you can do. There's also a bunch of things that I think were sort of born outside of agile and just are popular practices now, like CICD, arguable whether that's any part of the agile movement but it's definitely about about uh, feedback cycles uh, tdd that kind of thing i know you brought up pairing and pairing is is big according to some people in agile and to some it's not really necessarily an agile practice so i guess what do you actually apply when you if you set up a team or if you if you're responsible for a team and they're what they should be doing so typically we start out with just a couple things because i think that every team is different uh even you know i can take two people from teams that behave nearly the same and swap those two people and the two teams just changed personalities changed the way the team needs to work has changed so i think the makeup and the practices that you put together also have to be agile and deal with feedback so the things that um, we usually start with is we're, we're going to have a standup. Um, unfortunately, a lot of times that turns into a uh, status meeting more than anything. Um, I really like to, when we start out to say, tell us something you learned instead of like, what'd you do yesterday? Tell me something you learned yesterday. Uh, tell me, are you blocked on anything? Um, what and what are you excited about today? Not what are you doing today? What what ticket are you doing? What are you excited about today? What do you plan on learning about today? Um, 
So we start with that pair programming, mainly because of, especially on new teams, everybody's trying to learn, right? What, what the project is, where it's going. And, you know, I talk about shortening that feedback cycle. The shortest feedback cycle is when the person next to you says, wait, 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 wait. What are you doing? You know, or where's your test? Or, uh, hey, I've done something really similar to this. Let's try this other idea. Uh, and then the third thing is is retrospectives. So every week, the team getting together, um, kind of uh, the very basic retrospective, right? Is like what you do well, what you do poorly, what what should you continue to do, what should you stop doing, um, and uh, so out of that retrospective, encouraging teams to come up with at least one thing, usually try to stick to one or two, don't, don't make too many changes that they're going to change in the next week and try sometimes like you to measure that if you can, some things are a feeling, right? Like sometimes the best way to measure is, did this make everybody on the team happy or really frustrated? Do you feel like it had a good impact? Like like sometimes that that is more important than any number that you can put to anything. Um, but having that feedback and then and a willingness to actually stick to it for a week. If you say you're going to try something, try it long enough to really know. Because a lot of times when you try something new, it's painful. People hate it, you know. And then at the end of that week, maybe even if it was painful during retrospective questioning, what, what is the cause of that pain? Is it what you just changed about the team or did that change just point out another problem? Like if we are switching pair switching a lot, right. Is the change like, maybe it seems painful, but why? And maybe it's, uh, well, we spend so much time getting up to speed. Well, is that a communication problem there? Is there something else that we can work on or do we need to, change how we're pairing like and what is that what is how's that work for that team so yeah pair programming uh stand-ups retrospectives that's where we start and then see where we go from there and then every team kind of kind of builds up themselves and i will say kanban typically um or kanban or however i, I hear it pronounced differently be, all the time very mindful part of it is is proprietary and and uh, yeah licensed how about a how about a board of cards that yeah. go through different but, states <laughs> right, right here is you can use the word kanban because that just means card in japanese mm. but we can't talk about the kanban method much ah i didn't know that that that's what i heard at least huh interesting no scrum for you um i call scrum agile with training wheels. Uh, it, it feels very iterative waterfall from, from my point of view, I've dealt with it a lot over the years. Um, and to me, scrum is more about reporting to managers mm. than it is about having everyone up and down the chain involved in making decisions. That doesn't mean that that's the intention, but it's how I see it used all the time. And when I when pull teams back to just like the super basic stuff that I talked about earlier, it lets go of some of that preconceived things. And, and also because it doesn't feel like a reporting mechanism, which is what Scrum feels like to a lot of people, and, and that they're stuck in this, like you've committed to this, so now you must do it in that amount of time. Uh, 
mentality because it frees them from that. They're able to more openly express themselves in, in ways that, that lead to a better product. And I, I don't mean like openly express their feelings. I I'm talking like openly express about like, Hey, we need to reprioritize this because we're not locked in. You know, we didn't commit like that word and sprint. Those are like bad words as far as I'm concerned, because sprint says we're running and at the end of a sprint, you know, in running, you should be exhausted or you didn't actually sprint very well. Uh, and that's, I don't think a good, good thing for people to feel like they must be exhausted and that commitment. Also, I watch tickets at the beginning of, of any of those. If you start to like map out how long tickets take, they take a little longer. And then as you get closer and closer to that end, they take shorter. And if you start checking when bugs are, are reported, most of the bugs are also tickets that got completed at the end of a sprint because people are trying to rush to get it across that finish line. And that's where costs creep in, right? Is mm -hmm. everything related to, to, to big project programming, all the costs are, are almost all directly related to mistakes. Eliminate the mistakes and you drive your costs way down. And you put pressure on people, they're going to make more mistakes. Right. Especially artificial pressure, right? That's right. And, and yeah. it often is. Yeah. And I think if you talk to, to a lot of people that are enthusiastic about Scrum, they'll be like, oh, but, but the sprint, like the end of the sprint isn't the deadline. That's just when we evaluate if like, oh, how did we do this time with the, uh, with the estimation? And there's a bunch of things to learn there for next time. But that's not what it feels like in my experience to do a sprint in any <laughs> sprint setup I've ever been in. Do you have to do a sprint? to to take temperature <laughs> to do estimates to compare all these values and and that's where i'm like I, I don't think so and then it turns really here's the big thing for for any manager out there listening who's like no way i love scrum i love iterations i love sprints whatever you want to call them at the end of it when things aren't quite done then you have all these things planned out behind it sometimes two three sprints back right and you say, oh, well, we have these three tickets that we didn't get to. The last two tickets we did are broken because, because we were trying to rush them out to meet the deadline. So we have to fix those. So I have to move these three tickets into the next sprint. And then we have to look there and say, okay, what do we take out of this one and move to the next one? And then we got to take out of that one and move to the next one. And you just paid somebody for two hours just to move tickets backwards. When, you know, if you just have a, a prioritized list you can adjust those priorities. And if it isn't started, it's still at the top of the prioritized list and you can adjust that at any point in time. And you're not like, oh, well, if we got to pull something out, we got to put something in. It actually allows you at that point to change priorities on things that I, I always say, only change priorities on stuff that hasn't been started. Because once you've started it, you've put money into it, right? So once somebody's writing code and they're going to stop all of that, put that on pause, go do this other thing and then come back and they have to, a lot of times you might as well throw away that code because things have changed before you get back to it. Or um, you don't even know what it was about and you're going to spend a lot more time figuring out what you did versus just starting over. So that's a cost problem and you have to have a big discussion about that. But anything that isn't started, reprioritize, add to the top of it, anything else. And, and, 
allows people to feel a little more free and to focus on what really matters, which is, you know, the users of the software and the, I mean, bottom line, the money that the business is going to be making from that software. Even if you're building an internal tools, ultimately at the end of the day, it's about money or government compliance. I mean, government compliance is also the only like true deadline I've ever seen. Yeah. And even then, sometimes that's fudgeable. <laughs> yeah. All of that resonates resonates quite closely with with my experience of of sort of Scrum and uh, those agile variants. I um, there's a ton more we we absolutely could get into, but I think we're coming up on time. So, is there? Uh, anything you would like to share with the listeners around binary noggin around what you're doing what you guys are up to yeah sure um we are currently looking for uh mid and senior level elixir developers you can send a resume to resumes at binary noggin.com uh so that that is like we're really excited to be moving forward we've got some some big uh, things in works for healthcare, some hardware, some R and D work, which is really awesome when people reach out to you and they're like, we just want you to come do R and D work for us. Yes, please. Yes. I, I will play and you can pay me for it. That's amazing. Uh, in the last year, we've had two clients IPO and ring the bell at, uh, at the New York stock exchange, which is pretty amazing too. So we've, we've got some, some really fun stuff and we, we hope to keep that momentum going forward. Um, would love to to hear from anybody. Binary Noggin is an excellent team to work for. It's it's a great environment and they have a lot of fun. Thanks. Also, uh, if anybody out there wants to, on Thursdays we have our Noggin Day, and we would which is just it's a lot like Google's twenty percent time. We would love to hear what everybody else is learning about on Noggin Day too, because it also gives us ideas of things we want to dig into, and and we like to share with you what we're doing on our Noggin Days. So if you can jump on Twitter and get into those that would be amazing yeah that's always a a fun hashtag when when it's moving all right i think that wraps us up uh thanks again to our sponsor groxio which is i believe career fuel for programmers hey i thought we'd end up talking about elixir and agile but we didn't quite make it to that eh, near enough we we made we talked a little bit about and agile nerves, right <laughs> that's true we did talk a little bit about nerves I think we'll catch you in about two weeks, hopefully, with uh, one of the smooth hosts back in the driving seat. All right. Take care, everyone. Nice. That was a lot of fun. Thanks, Amos. Thank you all.